You might think differently for those that are married, but a wedding ring, it says a lot. Basically, what you're saying is, I'm not my own. I'm not my own. I belong to someone else. But you're also saying that someone else belongs to me. And it signifies the commitment that you've made, the covenant of marriage. And this commitment, well, it's expressed through the wedding ring. The wedding ring is a circle, which means there's no beginning, nor is there an end. It represents that this commitment that I've made in entering into marriage, it's a lifelong commitment. Just as the wedding ring doesn't end, neither is the commitment to marriage supposed to end. See, in this text, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is going to discuss just that. He's going to discuss the commitment of marriage. And that's the title the commitment of marriage. <clears throat> now, I know there are some here. I know personally there are some that have experienced divorce. Some have experienced divorce as unbelievers, and there's others that have experienced divorce as a believer. Now, this is a sensitive topic. And if you're one of those people and divorce has impacted you, whether it was with you and another person or a parent or family member, whatever it is, I want to be sensitive in this time as I communicate what Jesus is communicating here. But I'm also going to stay faithful to teach the word and what it says. So let me pray so we can prepare our hearts and dive into this text. Lord, we thank you for the clarity that you bring, uh, God, that you give us a, as um, it pertains to the commitment of marriage, God. And I pray that you would speak today, um, Lord, knowing that there's some that, that haven't been married, there's some that won't be married, and there's some that are married and were married and everything in between, Lord. And you have something for each and every one of them. And you address all those things in this text. So I pray God, that you would speak to us, that you would stir hearts, that you would give us a biblical understanding about marriage and divorce. And when I say marriage, not just the marriage between a husband and a wife, but the marriage to you, Lord. And I pray that through this, we would choose to honor you in that relationship that you've called us to. Lord, you're a perfect groom and we're a flawed bride. So I pray that you would just speak to us and meet us right where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 19 um, will be in verses 1 to 15 today. If you recall, the last couple of weeks, uh, while we were in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus was discussing conflict resolution first, right? And he talked about how his children are his heart and our brothers and sisters in Christ are Jesus's children. So if we have a problem with our brother or sister, we got a problem with Jesus's child and he makes it clear how much he desires for us to pursue reconciliation and he even gives us specific details about how to walk through and pursue that reconciliation and confronting one another and confronting with multiple people and then bringing it to the church and all these different things. If you didn't hear that, you can grab one of the CDs or listen online. But after he talks about conflict resolution, Peter asks him, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus teaches them about forgiveness. Why? Because forgiveness is pivotal when dealing with conflict resolution. You can resolve an issue, but still have bitterness and resentment in your heart. And Jesus calls us to forgive people, to let go of that bitterness and resentment from the heart so that we can experience healing and freedom and all these different things. But both of those things, the last two topics, conflict resolution and forgiveness, all are for one reason. The reason reason Jesus is communicating those things is because he wants us to pursue unity. He wants us to be unified. Conflicts cause division. Let's be unified through the conflicts that cause division. Then he says, forgiveness, don't let bitterness and resentment prevent you from unity. No, pursue unity. Now he's going to discuss marriage. And marriage is such a beautiful picture of 
unity, the union that is committed to in marriage is really a picture of the Trinity and our relationship with God and so many other things that all discuss in this text. But if you look at Matthew chapter 19, verse one, we'll begin to understand this a little better as we break this down. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, he was talking about conflict resolution and forgiveness, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Okay, so this is interesting. Uh, In the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very similar gospels, we don't see Jesus going to Jerusalem or the region of Judea very often. Doesn't mean he didn't. In John's gospel, he talks about it quite a bit that Jesus did spend a lot of time there in Jerusalem. But we do see that Jesus spent much more time in Galilee, that was in the north, than he did in Judea, where Jerusalem is located. Why did he do that? Well, we see throughout the scriptures, Jesus refers to this hour. And he says, my hour has not come yet. The hour that he's speaking of is his death on the cross. Okay, so he knows the more time he spends in the Judea region, that's where the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin are. He knows the more time he spends around those guys, the more conflict is going to happen and the sooner he's going to die. So he knows in God's perfect timing, there is an hour he holds off and how much time he spends in Judea, in that region. And he focuses on Galilee because he's got a short time to make a big impact. And the more time he's in Judea, again, the closer his death will come. Obviously, that's where he will be killed. But this is important to note that this is Pharisee territory. He's going into Pharisee territory and he knows that he's going to get in a theological debate. Now, Jesus isn't going there looking for a fight, but he's not going to stand down from one either. We'll see that Jesus is purposed to stand up for the truth of God's word. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 2. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. So we see Jesus' intentions, why he was going to Judea. It was this, to heal multitudes, to engage in ministry. It was an act of love. It was an act of sacrifice. It wasn't for his benefit or his gain. It was for other people. So Jesus, his heart is for ministry. His heart is for healing. But look at the next verse, Matthew chapter 19. Verse three, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So the Pharisees, they come looking for a fight. I'll talk about that in a moment. But the reason that they're testing Jesus, the fight or theological debate that they're proposing, that they're asking of Jesus to uh, talk about or discuss, it all has to do with Divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? This was a controversial topic, okay? You basically had uh, two main views in regards to what justifies a, a biblical divorce. Now, you had this uh, this Rabbi Shammai, okay? And he was one of the views, and, and basically, or he came up with one of the views, he, he basically said that the only biblical reason to get divorced is because of sexual immorality. Now, Rabbi Shammai, he was like kind of like the strict one, like by the book, let's do it like this. He wasn't the popular one. People didn't like what Rabbi Shammai had to say about divorce. Okay. So then you have this other guy, Rabbi Hillel, who was another famous rabbi. And he basically said that you can divorce your wife for any reason, including, but not limited to if your wife spoiled your dinner or burnt your breakfast, or you saw your wife having a conversation with someone else, another male in the city. You could divorce your wife if she disrespected her parents. You could also divorce your wife if you found someone that you liked better. We listen to that like, what? That's crazy. That's not God's heart for marriage. But we see that today. People will divorce their spouses for all kinds of reasons. And we'll discuss that later. But Jesus, what he is being asked is, what is your opinion? 
what is your definition of the legitimacy of biblical divorce? Where do you stand? Now, before we get to Jesus's answer, we got to understand culture a little bit uh, in this time in Israel. See, marriage was sacred. Okay, marriage was sacred to the Hebrews in that culture. Why? Because God instituted marriage, and we'll discuss that in a moment. And we see a command from the Lord. He says in the beginning, be fruitful and multiply. See, marriage was so sacred to the Hebrews, and they took this command so seriously that if a man got to be 20 years old and wasn't married and didn't obey the command to be fruitful and multiply, it was a sin. So much so that they could legally, in their man-made law, put people to death. Imagine that. You're 20 years old and you don't, I would have been dead. You're 20 years old and you, and you don't get married. Okay. Hey, you didn't obey the be fruitful and multiply. Now this is the consequence for your disobedience. So we see that marriage was very sacred for the Hebrew sacred in the sense that it was something that you must do, if you will. And Jesus is going to discuss all of that. But what's also interesting about the culture is that marriage was sacred, sacred, but they had a very low view of women. See, women were considered property in that day, in that age. They looked at marriage as this, oh, God commanded this. This is something we must do. But women, they're like my property. I paid to marry this bride. And she's like, better than livestock, but kind of similar. That's the mentality that they had. That's crazy, right? But this is true. This is what that society believed in that day. And we can look at that and be like, man, that's crazy. But we see it today. When men objectify women, it's the same thing. Thinking them as property. This is a source for me to satisfy my sexual pleasure and not seeing them as a being that God created, a daughter of the Lord, someone so much more, something so much more than just an object. It's not, a woman is not just a, a source of pleasure, it's a source of opportunity for a man to engage in and a practice agape love it's a tool of sanctification women are so much more than this culture perceived and jesus makes that clear if there's anyone in history that stuck up for women early on it was jesus christ he did it time and time again he had women who were his disciples he even had women that were going the wrong way that he stuck up for if you look at matthew chapter 8 sorry john chapter 8 you remember the infamous adulterous woman that these pharisees bring to Jesus' feet and say what do you say about this this woman committed adultery and what did he say He who is without sin cast the first stone. He stuck up for that woman, even though she was in sin. Again, he had women that were his disciples. He even had a woman be the first to witness the resurrection. So Jesus, he had a very high view of women and he was almost going against the culture, if you will, to, to, to instill that truth in God's heart that, that, that men and women, hey, there's different roles and there's different things, but in God's eyes, he loves them both the same. We can't objectify. We can't look at women as property. That was the problem in the culture. And we see that in the world today. So these Pharisees, they pose this question, but look at what they're doing. In verse three, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, yada, 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 we already read it, is lawful for a man to divorce his wife for for any reason. So we see Jesus, he came to heal this multitude and the Pharisees came to hate on Jesus. They came to start a conflict. They came to test him. Specifically, they came to trap him. They weren't interested in loving on the people. They weren't interested in engaging in ministry. No, they were just looking for a theological debate and they picked the wrong one. They picked the wrong man to fight with because he's going to make them look Foolish. Now, the reason that they're trying to trap him is because they think that Jesus is either going to side with Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel. 
And it's basically a lose-lose situation. See, if Jesus sides with Rabbi Shammai, the one who had the stricter view about divorce, he said, you can only get divorced if you one of the parties practice sexual immorality. That's the only way God will justify it. See, that was the unpopular view, as I mentioned. So, if Jesus sides with Rabbi Shammai, then Jesus is probably going to lose a following. He has a multitude. This is in front of people. So people are like, oh man, that's your view. I'm going to, that's too hard. I'm going to step back. But if he sides with Rabbi Hillel and he has this loose, lax view of divorce and marriage, then he's not really sticking to the word. And though he might continue to gain a following, he's getting away from, from scripture and what it says. And we'll understand that better in just a moment but it's funny they try to put him so many times in so many different scenarios in the gospel they 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 try to put jesus in this lose-lose situation but we got to remember who this is it's jesus he's never going to lose okay he's going to win every fight that he engages in and just like that he does that he 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 wins this battle of words with these pharisees but there's something important to point out and this is kind of like the most pivotal uh point of this discussion in verse 3 it says is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason now that's where the argument begins to develop these rap sorry these pharisees are bringing this concept from the word of god and the confusion of a specific scripture if you look at deuteronomy chapter 24 where god addresses divorce says this deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 when a man takes a wife and marries her And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So if a husband finds uncleanness in his wife, then he can give her a certificate of divorce and God will honor, honor it. The problem comes in defining the terms. What does uncleanness mean? What does uncleanness mean? Rabbi Shammai said, Uncleanness means sexual immorality. Rabbi Hillel means uncleanness means anything. Even if you, even if you just don't like her anymore, you're not attracted to her anymore, or again, you found someone better, or she burnt your breakfast, whatever the reason is, uncleanness is uncleanness, make it what you will. Now that's the problem, and Jesus is going to define in this text what uncleanness actually means. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. So Jesus is going to respond. He says, and it answered, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So much here, but I want to bring you back to the beginning of verse 4. Jesus responds and he says, have you not read? The Pharisees, they bring up the this this idea and what they're really referring to is two man's opinion. Two different men. Rabbi Shammai, Rabbi Hillel. He, they think they're going to trap Jesus in picking the side of the opinion of one man. And what does Jesus say? Have you not read? He points them back to the scripture. Basically what he's saying is, I don't care what Rabbi Shammai said. I don't care what Rabbi Hillel says. I care what God says. It's God's opinion that matters, not man's. First point, God's opinion trumps man's opinion. God's opinion trumps man's opinion. If we want to know man's opinion... Go to man. If we want to know God's opinion, then we ought to go to God. And God, he reveals his opinion through his word. That's why Jesus is pointing him back to the word. Have you not read? Do you not know what the scriptures read? Regardless of opinions, let's look what God has to say. And sometimes we can get caught up with this. And I, I side with this person's opinion. And I side with this person's opinion. But the Lord's heart is to point us back to the scriptures so that we might know what God's opinion is. See, it's the word of God. That's going to guide us. That's going to lead us. That's going to show us the way. In Psalm 119, 
verse 105. You can just write it down. Psalm 119, verse 105. He says, his word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. It's God's word that lights up the path. If I'm seeking him in his word, then I'll know his opinion. I'll know the way to go. And look what Jesus does. First, he says, have you not read? Then he says, verse four, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. He doesn't just point them to scripture. He points them to the beginning of scripture. If we want to understand God's heart for marriage, then we have to go back to the beginning of Scripture and then to the end of Scripture and look at the Word of God in its entirety, okay? Not just the person's opinion, but what does God say? Full scope, full scale, scale the entire Word. What does He have to say about marriage? Now, we're not going to do that today because we don't have time, okay? But we will point out some important things throughout the Scripture to understand God's heart. And remember, He says... Have you not read he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? What he's getting at is God instituted marriage. Regardless of which rabbi said what, it was God that instituted marriage. So it's his instruction that we ought to follow. Not Rabbi Shammai's standard, not Rabbi Hillel's standard, but God's standard. He knows what it's supposed to be, okay? No man knows what it's supposed to be more than God. God knows he instituted it. So we should follow his instruction and what he says about it. Matthew chapter 19. Look what he says, verse 5. And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. What does that mean? It means two things, actually. The two become one at consummation and are becoming one through sanctification. Point number two. The two become one and are becoming one. We see there's a truth here that when the marriage is consummated, okay, yes, God made those two become one, become one flesh. But there's something even more important in my opinion. We see that, yes, the two become one at consummation, but God is trying to transform us. He's trying to sanctify us so that we look more like one, so that the union of marriage actually looks like a union, that there's unity in the union. See, whether you're married, whether you've been married, whether you're going to be married, whatever it is, God's heart for each and every one of us is sanctification. What's sanctification? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 gives us a good idea. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The sanctification process is simply this, the process by which God makes you like Jesus. He's trying to make us all like Jesus, even more so in the marriage union, in that commitment with that covenant. He's using that marriage to make you look more like Jesus. See, the Lord says he who finds a wife finds a good thing and yes if god provides someone for us that's a good thing but the lord he's more concerned with our holiness than our happiness why because we're never going to truly be happy until we're truly holy till we're truly living like god has called us to be the happiest we could ever be is 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 when we look more like jesus other than heaven follow me here so we see that god he doesn't just make them one at consummation he's making them one through sanctification. Now, how does that work in a marriage relationship? Well, let me ask you this. Has anyone had a conflict or argument with your wife or husband ever? No. Ooh. <laughs> right? If you say that hasn't happened, then I don't believe you. Um, in fact, when I do premarital or marriage counseling, I, I, I won't bless the marriage until they start getting in some types of conflict. Because if they're both like everything's good all the time, then there's a lot of hiding going on. There's a lot of misleading going on. Okay, there's problems with both of you. You're both sinners and there's changes that need to happen. Now, how does that work in marriage? Well, when there's conflicts, when there's arguments, I know you think you're always right, but not every time. And the truth is that when there are those things that bring division, we have to look at that and see that that God, that God is trying to use that division 
to make us more unified. What do I mean? When you get in an argument, it takes two people to get in an argument, right? And maybe you are right, maybe you are wrong, but the truth is you're not perfect. So often if we allow God to work in that conflict, to work in that argument, that situation that happened, if we take a step back and look at God's sovereignty, if you think, you pray, you seek, he'll show you there's something that you need to change. Because we all know this, anyone that's been married for any length of time, you are not going to change your significant other. It's not happening. No matter how hard you try, it's going to be God that changes that person. We're responsible for not changing our spouses. Yes, there's discipleship there, but we don't make the change happen. But we are responsible for changing ourselves and growing ourselves. So regardless of why the conversation or conflict or argument happened, if we could take a step back and look at what's God telling me that I need to change through this? There's something probably that you did wrong there. And there's something wrong that you did in the past if you can't find anything there. So if we can look at, oh, wait a minute, I need to change. I need to work on me. I need to see what God's trying to teach me so that we can grow in this union, that we can become more unified. It's like this. If you try to put a puzzle together and there was a piece that just wouldn't fit, okay? That's what it's like in our marriages. There's some edges that are rough that it's trying to fit together, but it just won't fit. Now, you're not going to find another piece that fits, but the Lord, what he'll do is start to like shave around some of those edges so that it starts to fit a little better. And as we grow closer and closer in our relationship with the Lord, we actually become one. Though we are one, we start to become one because God's heart is that. It's the unity that's found not only in marriage, but in the Trinity. That's what God stands for. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're completely unified. They are one. And that's the picture of marriage. Husband, wife, and God coming together and becoming one. Now the Trinity is perfect and we're not, but we're called to pursue it. We're called to grow in those conflicts, those arguments, those situations. If we allow it, God will use it to bring us closer together. See, what the enemy uses for division, God uses for unification. But so often when we get in those arguments, that person becomes the enemy. My wife is the enemy. My husband is the enemy. They did this to me. The enemy is the enemy. Your wife or your husband is not the enemy. We don't battle against flesh and blood. The enemy will try to divide marriages. But again, if we could take a step back, look at what God's trying to teach us when we come back together. Now, what the enemy used for division, God did use for unification. Now we actually look more like one. So the two become one and are becoming one. Then he says this at the end of verse six. Sorry, all of verse six. So then... They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So when the two become one, make that commitment, consummate the marriage. It says God joined that together. God was doing something there. And because God is honoring that commitment, who are we to separate from that commitment? Who are we to change the commitment? Who are we to walk away from the commitment? He says, let not man separate. That includes us. That includes husband. That includes wife. Don't be the one that causes separation. Don't be the one that leads the family or the the relationship into divorce. And he's going to talk about divorce specifically and how in certain cases he absolutely uh, permits it. But his heart is that we wouldn't separate. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Matthew chapter 19, verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? They're referencing Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, the verse we went over. What does uncleanness mean? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Look at what the Pharisees say. Why then did Moses command divorce? And how does Jesus respond? No, Moses didn't command divorce. He permitted divorce. Okay, they're projecting this thing that Moses did on God because God was giving Moses direction. They're under the assumption that in these certain scenarios, because my wife burned my breakfast, God's commanding that I get divorced from her. It's like, no, that's not what he's saying. God doesn't command divorce, but he does permit it in certain circumstances. And Jesus is going to address those circumstances. And he says the reason, verse eight, why he permits divorce 
is because why? Because of the hardness of your hearts. He doesn't say because of the hardness of your father's 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 hearts. It doesn't say because of the hardness of the, the, your ancient ancestors. He says because of the hardness of your hearts. Jesus is making a connection here. Why? Because they're talking about marriage between a husband and a wife. But throughout scripture, and we'll get into it, God calls Israel his wife. These men are called to be God's wife but they're acting in a way that should lead ultimately to God divorcing them. They're almost, if you will, committing adultery against God, which I'll discuss a little bit more later. But we see the whole problem with the scribes and Pharisees and even Sadducees is they get so caught up with this man-made law, they get away from God's law, and that's what they're committed to. They're not committed to the man, the God that 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 instituted the law. They're committed to this man-made law that, that they fashioned themselves throughout history. So because they put this law, they put their man-made law, the Mishnah and the Talmud, above God, they're literally committing adultery against God. They've made a God of their man-made law and they've neglected the God that gave the law to begin with. Their relationship with the Lord is broken. They don't have a relationship with the Lord. That's what Jesus says to them so many different times. They have hard hearts towards God. They chose another God in the form of the law. We'll understand this a little bit better as we talk more about adultery. But look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So Jesus, what he's doing here is he's defining uncleanness. He's saying that uncleanness actually is, God intended, he said, uncleanness is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is the only permissible reason to divorce. Jesus is saying this at this time. But when we look at the full context of Scripture, some circumstances come up later in the early church, and Paul adds to this, okay? Jesus didn't address this, but it's still biblically true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the whole chapter is really about marriage. A lot of good stuff there. We'll just pull out a couple verses. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Basically, context, he's speaking about the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. So it'd be like this, you know, this person, this couple, they used to worship pagan idols and all these different things. Now, let's say the woman, she gets saved and she accepts Jesus. Now the husband's like looking at her life like, dude, keep talking about this Jesus guy. You're always going to church. You're always doing these different things. You act different, all this stuff. I'm done with it. I'm going to leave. I'm going to depart. I'm going to continue to follow my pagan gods and I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. If that other person, the unbeliever, separates from the marriage, they pursue divorce. God's saying through Paul that that's okay, that that's permissible. If you come to faith, this is basically what he's saying. If you come to faith and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and your significant other doesn't want anything to do with you after that. Basically, what you're telling them is my marriage to Christ is more important than my marriage to you. And it's not the believer that's causing separation. It's the unbeliever that leaves them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So if that unbeliever wants to pursue divorce, God says, okay, if they, they're the pursuer, then, then you, can, uh, you can sign the divorce papers and, and, and be unmarried to that person. He also says this, there's a difference uh, between divorce and separation, okay? And I'll describe this a little bit. If you look at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 10 first, sorry. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So basically what Paul's saying is God's heart is for marriage to be this lifelong thing. But if there's a scenario, let's just talk practically, where there's abuse, where there's addiction, where there's these things that are going on, 
Sometimes it's better to separate. Sometimes it's better for there to be a, a, a time gap and some separation in the marriage. But we got to remember what he says. If you're that person and you're in that situation, he says, don't act like you're unmarried. Okay, you're still married because God's heart, he says, is for reconciliation, for you to get back together with that person. Hopefully that person, whether it was addiction or sexual or sexual immorality, and we'll discuss that later, whatever it may be, sometimes it is good to have that separation that that other person can really think about and ponder what their sin has done to them in hopes that they repent for the, from this and there can be that reunited relationship once again. So we see there's a difference between separation and marriage. If there is a need to separate for a time, don't act like you're divorced. Act like you're still married and your hopes is to reconcile that relationship. See, between Jesus and Paul, we really see two reasons for divorce that are permissible by God. If the unbeliever leaves the believer and wants divorce, okay. If, if one of the uh, spouses commits sexual immorality, then okay. But we see in our day and age, people get divorced for all kinds of reasons. And this is really sad. You know what the divorce rate in the world is? <clears throat> 51%. You know what the divorce rate in the church is? 51%. It's like, what? What are we missing? I think we're missing this understanding of what God's heart is in marriage. And he wants that again to be a union that lasts a lifetime. And people, they'll get divorced for all kinds of things. The uh, main things are typically uh, finances. It's a big one, big reason why people get divorced. Uh, a loss of a family member, often a child. Um, you also you also see poor communication. That's a huge one. Communication because husbands don't know how to communicate to their wives or vice versa. Separation, divorce end up happening. And there's a lot of other things that I would talk about, but there's some young ones in the room, so we're not going to discuss that. But Jesus, we see his heart is not that we would pursue divorce, that, but that we would pursue reconciliation. If you look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, that last part talks about sexual immorality. And he says, and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So basically what Jesus is saying is if someone followed through with divorce and it wasn't on biblical terms, then God is not recognizing the divorce. So if there's a couple that gets divorced for a reason other than sexual immorality or the uh, unbeliever left the believer because whatever, if it's a reason other than that, then God's not honoring that divorce. And if those two people pursue other relationships, they're committing adultery. Because though they the paperwork says they're divorced, God's saying, in my eyes, they're, they're not divorced because it wasn't under permissible circumstances. And what we see Jesus really hammering home in permissible divorce is sexual immorality and adultery. See, adultery we often think of as a husband or a wife having an affair, practicing sexual immorality uh, with, with another individual, but... We have to understand, and we will through Scripture, that God says adultery, as far as we're concerned, we commit adultery against God when we put anything before Him. When we place anything on the pedestal greater than God. And we see regardless of divorce, the Lord and His heart, even with adultery, is that we wouldn't be Divorced. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, he says this. Malachi 2, 16 says God hates divorce. He absolutely hates divorce. God permits divorce in certain circumstances, but he absolutely hates it. Why does he hate it? Because he knows what it's like. He's been there. His people have committed adultery against him since the beginning of time. He's had every reason to divorce his people, and yet he still forgives their adultery. Point number three. God hates divorce and forgives adultery. God hates divorce and forgives adultery. We see, if you've ever read uh, the book of Hosea, that's essentially what the whole book is about. We see this man, this prophet, this righteous man named Hosea, 
God tells him to marry a prostitute. He tells him to marry this prostitute named Gomer. And what do we see? Hosea is obedient. He marries the prostitute and she keeps leaving him for other men in this life of adultery and this life of sexual immorality and prostitution. And she's having kids with other men and all these different things. We're looking at that like, dude, Hosea, bro, that's like love like I've never seen. But God's whole point was just that. That's my heart for my people. My people leave me constantly. They worship these other gods committing adultery before me. They're putting these other things before me. And because of that, they are committing adultery. Yet God, he still forgives it. Now, when I say idolatry is really synonymous in the Bible with adultery, it's like, how could we commit sexual immorality against God? Well, We see throughout scripture, idols aren't just uh, little figures that were cut up and made. Uh, When he talks about idols, sometimes he's talking about actual demons. Uh, Other times he talks about materialism. You can either worship God or mammon. What's that? God or materialism. God or money. God or whatever. See, we can make idols out of anything. You've heard me say it before. Our hearts are little idol factories. We'll make idols out of anything. Good things, family, spouses, friends jobs, whatever, and we'll make idols out of bad things. Addiction, sexual immorality, it could be anything. Anything that we're putting, again, before God, on the throne, higher than God, we're literally committing adultery against God and the Lord. It hurts him so bad, but he still long suffers through it. There's a great example of this in Jeremiah chapter 3. In Jeremiah chapter 3, we'll read a few of these verses. Jeremiah chapter 3. God is addressing exactly what we're talking about with his people. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8 says, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Basically God saying, hey, they kept committing adultery and I gave them over to their desires. He uses the illustration of the certificate of divorce. Here you go. You want to be married to another God? I'm, I'm letting you do it. I'm freeing you from this covenant so you can enter into a covenant with your pagan gods. And then he says, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you from one, I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. We see this relationship between God and his people. He refers to his people as his wife. He refers to the church as his bride. And he says they've committed adultery by worshiping other these other deities. And he says, I gave them over to their adultery. I gave them over to their worship. You want that addiction? You want that sexual immorality? You want whatever it is? You'd rather be committed to that than committed to me? God says, here's your divorce papers. You can have it. I don't want this for you, but you can have it if that's what you really want. And then what does he try to do? My heart in giving you that was to bring you back to me. That you would recognize none of those other relationships are ever going to satisfy you the way that I can and I can alone. He says, my my backsliding children. It's like, I love you. I'm married to you. I want to bring you back. I want to do so many good things for you. I'm merciful. I'm forgiving. So even in the midst of adultery, God forgives his people. If we return to him but he also will give us over to what we choose. When we choose those things and realize they don't satisfy, we go back, we choose God. There's forgiveness, there's mercy there. In fact, there's not only mercy and forgiveness, there's also redemption. If you look at Hosea 
If you look at Hosea, um, again, we explained context, but Hosea was to marry a prostitute, and this represented God's relationship with his people. In Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Speaking of Gomer, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I brought, bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one half homers of barley. What's God saying? He's telling Hosea to go back and purchase his adulterous wife back. Literally pay the price for her to be redeemed. God says, if you come back to me, not only will I have mercy and forgiveness for you, but I'll redeem you. I paid the price so that I could bring you back to me. That's exactly what God calls Hosea to do because that's exactly what he did. He pays the price to so that we can return back to him. See, this is God's heart for marriage, that even though we could biblically divorce our significant other and there are certain grounds that it's permissible. We see that though there's, there's permissible grounds for God to divorce us, he still doesn't choose to divorce us. He accepts us back and this is his heart. Though there are certain things, sexual immorality, if the unbeliever leaves, whatever it may be, oh, this sexual, I can't get over this thing. Like this thing is destroying my marriage, obviously, and I don't think that I can remain married to them. The Lord says, I know how painful it is. I've been through it. I get it. So if that's where you're at, okay, that's permissible, but it's not his heart. See, there's a truth in scripture in Ephesians chapter five, verse one. It says, we're called to be imitators of God as dear children. This is the Lord's heart. This is his view. This is how he walks through marriage with his people. There's unlimited forgiveness. There's mercy. There's redemption. There's all these things. And that's the Lord's heart. I'm not saying that there's not permissible reasons to get divorced. It's true. Jesus is saying that it's true, but we have to look at God's heart. God's heart is that we would do everything we possibly could to pursue reconciliation. And if it's a situation where there's no other choice, God does permit it. Matthew chapter 19, verse 10. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So his disciples are like, and some of them are married. <laughs> They're like, uh, okay, if this is the, if this is the reality, then maybe it's better that we don't marry. The ones that aren't married, maybe we shouldn't get married. And they're right. Basically what Jesus is saying is it would be better not to get married than to marry and get a divorce. That's what he's saying. And he explains this better in Matthew chapter 19, verse 11 and 12 says, but he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Okay, I'm not going to describe eunuchs to you. Um, most of you probably know what they are. If if you don't look it up later, but basically what Jesus is discussing is celibacy. He's saying there's people that are born to be celibate, meaning that they don't really have sexual desires. They're like, I don't need a significant other. I'm good in my relationship with God. There's a gift of celibacy that God gives certain people. Not everyone. It's actually a spiritual gift. We see there's others. He says that man have made them eunuchs. Okay. Many believe that Daniel, the prophet was made a eunuch because of a prophecy back in Isaiah. Um, um, but anyways, we see that in different kingdoms in that culture and in ancient times, we see the king would often make the leaders around him eunuchs. Why? So they weren't enticed by the, his queens and his concubines and all these different things. It, it made him trust them more. So there's eunuchs that were made eunuchs by man. That's what Jesus is talking about. And then there's other eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That means there's those in the body of Christ that have chosen a life of celibacy, that have chosen to abstain from sexual immorality, that have even chosen to abstain from marriage in general. And we see that. I know there's even some in this church and many others that I know that they would rather just focus on their relationship with the Lord. And that's it. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. See, 
there were some that just choose to abstain from marriage, from sexuality, because they love the Lord so much. Now, we can look at Jesus as an example. Jesus lived a life of celibacy. I don't care what books you've read that said otherwise, with Mary Magdalene, all this stuff. It's not true. Um, but Jesus, he lived a life of celibacy, but it's for a different reason. It's not that Jesus didn't want a bride. It's because he had one already. Jesus, if he engaged with the bride, he would be committing adultery against his church, the bride of Christ. That was the marriage that he was focused on. That was the marriage that he laid down his life for. Now, Paul, on the other hand, there's a lot of debate about this, but Paul was believed to have a, a life, live a life of celibacy. Some say that he was married at one point because he was likely part of the Sanhedrin. And as a Pharisee, uh, some say that you were supposed to be married. We don't know that for sure. But what we do know that in his Christian walk, he was not married. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Uh, look at verse seven first, sorry, seven to nine. For I wish that all men were given as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. He's talking about specifically the gift of celibacy and how there's other spiritual gifts as well. But I say to the unmarried and to the widow, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Look what Paul says here. He says, it is good for them if they remain as I am. What's Paul talking about? He's celibate. He's not in a marriage relationship. He's not practicing sexual immorality. Now, maybe you're someone that, hey, I'm not interested in ever getting married. God says, that's a good thing. If, if you can receive this, Jesus said, if you can receive this, then, then that's good. And it'd be better actually to not be married. Why? Because when we're married, and he talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, our marriage consumes a lot of our time. Amen? How much time Wives, does it take to take care of your husbands, right? We're messes. It takes a lot of time. <laughs> Michelle's just like smiling like, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> no, in all sincerity, marriage is consuming in a very blessed way. But there's a truth that if you look at your life and maybe you were a believer before you got married, you had a lot more time with Jesus, right? Because that was all you were focused on. Now you get married and it starts to consume some of your time. So Paul says, yeah, it'd actually be better if, if you have the gift and you have self-control. Yeah, just stick with your marriage covenant with God. Don't, don't add extra stuff in your life. Focus on that. But that's not everyone. Most of us don't have the gift of celibacy. The Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. But what Paul is discussing here, what his point is, is that we should be in all First Corinthians chapter 7, is that we should be content in our relationship with Christ. Point number four, contentment in Christ is crucial in marriage. Contentment in Christ is crucial in marriage. Jesus, he talks about these eunuchs that were born that were made eunuchs, that chose to be eunuchs. And the reason that they chose to be eunuchs is because they're good with Christ and Christ alone. But even if we haven't chosen that path, I'm married, many of us are, even if we chose to, to be in a marriage with a, with a human, with a, with a spouse, it's still so crucial for our contentment to be found in Christ and Christ alone. See, God has to take priority. You've heard it said different times and in different ways. If we're not doing our vertical relationship right, then we're not going to be doing our horizontal relationships right. So if we're not finding our contentment in Christ, we ain't finding it in our significant other. See, we can do this thing where we make literally idols of our spouses that they're my one and all. And Jesus is like kind of down, you know, after spouse, family, job, these things. And he's like over here. Relationships aren't going to be good. They're not going to be what they're supposed to be. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Because we don't know how to love each other if we're not learning how God loves us. He gives us the example of what love is. And we can do this and put our spouse on this pedestal, but there's a truth, and I'm sure many of you have found this, that there's not a person in your life that's going to fill that void. There's not one person in your life that's going to fill that void. Only God can fill the void. Yes, marriage adds to it. And there's so much blessings and there's so many awesome things that come with marriage. But if we're not finding contentment in our relationship with Christ, we're not going to find contentment in our relationship with our significant other. 
That's what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 7. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. This is where we'll wrap it up. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now, this is interesting. So Jesus was just healing multitudes, right? And in the midst of the multitudes, these Pharisees, they come up and they confront him about what his opinion is as far as marriage and divorce goes. Now, these multitudes are hearing this conversation. Now, these parents that were hearing the conversation come up and bring their children to Jesus so that they might be blessed. I believe, personally, that these parents are getting it, that they're understanding what Jesus is saying, that our commitment to him has to be priority, not just in our relationships with our significant other, but also in our relationships with our children and our family in general. They're bringing their children before Jesus, almost in a yes to be blessed, but in a way of of surrender. I want to give you not just my marriage, I want to give you my my whole family. I want to bring that before you so that you can bless, bless the rest. Point number five, make Christ preeminent and you'll be blessed. Make Christ preeminent and you'll be blessed. When we put Jesus first in our marriages and we put Jesus first in our family life, now we're giving God the opportunity to, 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 to take control of those things and, and bless the rest of our relationships. If we're doing that relationship with him right and we're putting him first, he's number one. And everything else, the priorities are how they're supposed to be. It's not like neglecting your wife or neglecting your family. It's not that at all. It's we learn from God how to love our family. And if we're not doing that, we're not putting ourselves in a position to be blessed and have that blessed God-fearing family. See, if our priorities, if they, if they shift, if wife or husband trumps God or children trump God, then the relationships, the rest of the relationships, they're going to crumble. They're not going to be what they were supposed to be. Not meaning that you won't have those relationships, but they will not be what they were supposed to be. They won't be blessed because Christ has to be first. Then those other relationships, trusting God, that'll take care of the rest. So then he lays hands on them and he blesses these children. Okay. Now, Marriage, it's such a sacred commitment. It's such a sacred covenant that God gives us the opportunity to engage in. He said, it's not good that man shall be alone. And again, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. But what's more important than our relationship with our significant other is our relationship with God once again. And when we're doing that right, our marriages will be better. Our our family dynamic will be better. Even our friendships will be better. See, Jesus... Speaking through Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24. This is where we'll end. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24. He gives us this illustration about the marriage dynamic and how the Lord views marriage and what our response to Jesus should be. If you look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24, it says, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. See, we're referred to, even in Ephesians chapter 5, as the bride of Christ. And he says, let the bride of Christ be subject to the groom, meaning we're called to live a life of surrender, a life of submission to Jesus. Whatever he, He's a perfect groom. He's not like us flawed husbands. He's a perfect groom. Anything he tells us or asks us to do is for our own benefit. But our response should be man or woman, whoever it is, we're all the bride of Christ. Those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Our life is supposed to look like a life of surrender and submission to the groom. So we got a choice. 
Do we recognize that relationship? Do we recognize that when we asked Jesus into our life, it wasn't just asking this God to come forgive me for all my sins. When we ask Jesus into our life, that's what we're entering into. It's a marriage covenant. It's a commitment and a lifelong commitment at that. In fact, with the Lord, it's an everlasting, eternal commitment. And how do we honor that commitment? Again, it's through submission and surrender. If we do that, we will bring honor to God in that marriage relationship, what it's actually supposed to look like. More even than our husbands and the husband and wife dynamic, our, our relationship to Jesus Christ, because that's the most important marriage that we'll ever engage in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for your your heart for marriage we we thank you god that that you give some the opportunity to 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 get married we we thank you that you give some the the gift of celibacy lord we we thank you mostly for uh the marriage that you've invited us into just thinking about the um Marriage supper of the lamb right at the end of the tribulation, God, what you've invited us into is something so special, something so amazing, a a marriage that lasts for eternity, God. So I pray that we would be so focused on on that, our relationship with you, God. And as we focus on you and purpose to surrender to you and submit to you and honor you, Lord, that you would uh, indeed bless bless our other relationships, God, our our relationships with our our significant other, our relationships with our children's friends, family members, whoever it may be, but I pray that we would put you first. In Jesus' name, amen.